for coming back for episode two of the Plastic Posse podcast. We want to thank everybody who listened to episode one and also especially those that gave us feedback on our Facebook page. Had a really good reaction to it. Feedback was overwhelmingly positive. So thanks to all. And uh, we hope you enjoy episode two even more. A couple things to talk about here before we get going. We have a new friend over in Ireland. His name is Warren Sterrett, and he's put together an initiative called the Golden Sprue Awards, uh, which you can find at www.goldensprueawards.com. He was featured on the On the Bench and also the Plastic Model Mojo uh, podcast, so you can listen to those recent episodes and kind of hear some of the specifics. He's a scale modeler, and he's put together a way for modelers to nominate their favorite new kits in different genres, favorite manufacturers, favorite other categories like favorite paint, those kind of things. And so we want to really help him out and support him in this. He wants to, if he can get enough support behind it, make it kind of an annual thing. He's got built into it a little bit of a motivation. If you enter some nominations and you can put in your email and uh, be entered into a random drawing for some nice prizes that they're giving away. Everybody head on over to www.goldensprueaward.com and let's support Warren in this effort. It should be a lot of fun. But we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got some great listener feedback. And to start things off, we have a really awesome surprise. Uh, We're very, very excited to introduce this episode's special guest host, our newest honorary posse member, direct from Melbourne, Australia, the godfather of scale modeling podcasts from On The Bench. Welcome, Dave. (laughs) What a great intro. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Hey, I've never been a member of a posse before, so I this is quite exciting for me because, you know, when I was a kid on Saturday afternoons, you used to have cowboy shows to watch on TV, and I've always wanted to be part of a posse, so do I get a badge and a gun? We'll work on that. I don't, I don't you know, uh, the, your uh, import folks might have a problem with the gun, but we could at least maybe get you a hat and a badge. What do you think, guys? I think that's a great idea. Uh, well, since Dave is unencumbered from Ian and Julian this week, uh, hey guys, hopefully we can talk to you sometime soon. Wanted to start off, uh, Dave, with finding out where On the Bench started. I think you've been going since 2017. You guys are nearing 100 episodes, which is just fantastic. Tell us, how did On the Bench start? Well, it, gee, 2017 is just so long ago now. It's funny, it started because I, I found podcasts and I used to drive. I got tired of listening to radio when I was driving in the car. I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great to have a podcast on plastic models? So I started looking through and there was nothing there. So what do you do when you can't find something that you want? You, you start it up and you build it yourself. And that's what we did. We ended up building or starting uh, the podcast. Uh, originally, it was just me and uh, Ian, and we had uh, Julian on as a special guest for a couple of episodes, and that dynamic worked really well. And so Julian ended up being part of the gang, and uh, so we just kept on going. But, gee, it's funny, you know, nearly 100 episodes, you go back, I go back, I listen to the first couple of episodes, I just cringe at how bad we were back then. It's, 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 it's a real laugh to hear how, you know, 
and yet now we've we've seemed to have a we've got a fantastic following. I mean, you know, we just we've just tipped over two hundred thousand downloads, which is really wow, super wow, yeah, that's, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, you guys you guys have Patreon supporters, got sponsors. You guys have really broken a lot of ground for certainly scale modeling podcasts and maybe podcasts in general. What's the plastic modeling community in Australia like? You know, are there a lot of clubs over there? Is there a lot of participation? Yeah, there are a lot of there's a lot of participation, and in fact, the and I'm going to probably upset the rest of Australia when I say this, but um, the biggest modelling show actually happens here in Melbourne. Fortunately, it didn't happen this year due to COVID, but we get about so well, they get about eight eight hundred um, entries with about two thousand models that are displayed, which is uh, pretty good. Yeah, it that's really three good. Three days. Nice. We're really blessed down here, particularly in Melbourne, but certainly uh, around the country. I've got Within an hour and a half drive of my home location, I've got 15 model shops to choose from. Oh, wow. That's, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly better than here in the States. Well, that's not even including the ones that are in the country locations as well. If I, if, I, if I throw that blanket to about a two-hour drive, I'm perhaps put another three or four model shops into that one as well. So, And that's not counting the specialist model shops that are devoted to, say, Warhammer, that genre, we're really blessed out here. And so to support that many shop is definitely a huge, huge, huge group of modelers here. Have you been to any shows here in the States before? No, I haven't. So, and it's funny you should ask that. We were talking as we were sort of getting set up for the show this afternoon or tonight. And Dave from the other podcast from Plastic Model Mojo, he's really been riding me about perhaps getting out to Las Vegas. This is a special announcement on your show. I'm actually going to endeavour to get to Las Vegas in 2021 for the big IPMS show. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, That is great news. You guys heard it here first from Dave. When you do come over, we're all planning on being down there, you know, uh, COVID permitting. We definitely will have to get together and do some co-podcasting. That sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, that sounds awesome. Of course, the only rider I've got to put on that is if there's uh, some type of vaccine or something, because at the moment, our government won't let us travel overseas at the moment until everything's all sorted out. But I'm pretty confident by the time we get around to August next year, things will be sorted out. Absolutely. Uh, go, going back to On the Bench, do you have any plans or anything that you guys are uh, wanting to talk about yet for big episode number 100 or any any new changes to your podcast? No real big changes. The formula works, so we're pretty happy to leave it as it is. The only frustrating thing is because of COVID, we're not in the studio together. I think the show bounces off each other a lot better when you're all sort of face-to-face because, you know, we can sit here and chuck pens at each other and and do that sort of stuff. And, of course, the boys are really used to coming over to my place because my lovely wife, Michelle, cooks them up a really big breakfast. So I sort of wheel them into the studio after that and they're groaning (laughs) and full of bacon and eggs and coffee. Yeah, so moving forward to our 100th episode, I've really been racking my brains over that. I've been thinking about doing a live type show but that won't work because 75 percent of our um, audience is all overseas so that make it a bit harder or different sort of time zones and everything i might just go back and just get a whole heap of people who've been on the show before and get them just to drop in and say good day we'll see how that sort of works and pans out and works 
Well, make sure you celebrate. That's quite an accomplishment. We're we're here on episode number two, and we can definitely appreciate the work that goes into actually putting out 100 episodes of content. So uh, just congratulations again. Yeah. Oh, thanks, guys. And congratulations on your first show. It was a good one. Thank you. Oh, oh, thank thank you. you. That's very, very kind. And, you know, just so everybody knows out there, Dave's been incredibly supportive at, you know, answered lots and lots of questions, helped promote us. You've been integral in our launch and, and just very appreciative of that. Dave, we want to make sure that you feel comfortable. So strap yourself in. We want you to be a, a full participant on this show. We're going to get going here. You know, feel free to jump in. And I know our listeners are going to really enjoy that. We got a bunch of listener feedback this week. Why don't we uh, start talking about some of that? All right. First of all, let me tell you, I'm Doug. Somebody forgot to introduce myself on our other co-host over there in Virginia. That's TJ. TJ, welcome. Yeah. How you guys doing? <laughs> Sorry, I, guys. I just and, and just to add something, TJ is from Virginia, and everybody knows Virginia is for lovers. It is. It's all our license plates. <laughs> all right. Let's get into listener feedback. We've got a few. There's actually quite a bit, and the few that were early on, and we're gonna share these. Chris McLean, he chimed in, wanted to let us know how much he enjoyed episode one, and he really appreciates that he we're talking Warhammer and gaming miniatures and things like that. His entry point into the hobby was Warhammer. He even went and shared some of his photos to our Facebook page. So if you'd like to see those, feel free to check it out. Um, let me let me chime in on that. Chris's miniatures were awesome. They were, the ones he showed us were from the, I think it's Lord of the Rings strategy battle game. I can't remember exactly what it's called. It's Lord of the Rings themed and they were the Rohirrim and they were really, really they, cool. They were really good. Absolutely. Alan Morell, he uh, wanted to let us know that he enjoyed our episode and he asked how we think that podcasts can benefit the modeling community. What do you all think? Yeah, sure. I'll chime in there. First of all, I've met Alan when I was up in Canada and he is a true gentleman of the hobby. You couldn't come across a nicer guy. So how do we think the podcast can benefit the modeling community? It's amazing how many people we get writing in saying that the podcast for them is like their model club because they don't have one close to them. We're, we're playing a, a very vital role in reaching out to all those people who are, who are isolated, you know, either geographically or for one thing or another. So that's one big tick for what we're doing. The second thing is we're just promoting the, the hobby itself, anything that promotes the hobby. And that's why I'm sort of jumping up and down and applauding you guys so much because you're coming into the with the gateway drug of Warhammer and Gundam, <laughs> which obviously leads into bigger and better things for the modeling uh, hobby itself. I think we're all doing our own little thing. And the beauty about podcasting, it's sort of as close as you can get to radio, live radio, I guess. Yep. And unlike YouTube, which is where you go really just to listen and see how you do effects, this is um, a place for us to sort of sit and talk about the actual hobby in um, as real time as we can get. What do you guys think? How can these podcasts help the modeling community at large? I, I think it's just good. I mean, I just like to talk about what I do. I don't really know how to put it any other way. Sometimes people just want to hear other people talk about the things that they like that they also have in common. Kind of going back to what like Dave was saying, maybe they don't know a lot of people that are into building models. Sometimes it feels like, you know, I don't, I don't know, you just feel, you like to listen to, you know, people talk about things they really like. And, you know, I think uh, everyone here, we love this hobby, like a lot. Like this is one of the only things that I do is build scale models. I may mean, have other hobbies too, but this is my primary one. So to get a chance to talk about that with people, have people listen and, and give us feedback and interact with us, on the internet is it's awesome i mean you you can't ask for 
you know, anything better, I think. And I think that helps people, especially now, reach out to people and be connected. Well, you know what? It's really funny because until a month ago, I'd never even realized there were modeling podcasts. I mean, it makes sense that there is, but it's such a visual hobby that it didn't cross my mind that I could listen to people talk about it. When Scott approached me about doing this, of course, I started listening to to a bunch of them. And what I really appreciate about these shows is I can listen to these guys talk about their love for modeling, and it makes me want to model some more. It, it kind of, because we all get in those ruts where we don't feel like building. And, you know, we're like, oh, I just, not today, not today. And we do that for days on end. Well, after listening to one of the other shows on the bench and uh, Plastic Model Mojo, I just I just have to get working. I got to get my hands busy. I've got to get my fingers on those models. And that really helps me a ton. And if we can find a way to share that with even more people, then we can get more people working on their, their stuff. What a great question. Yeah. And to kind of circle back on that, I mean, for most people, scale modeling is a solitary exercise, right? You know, I know that some people will come over, you know, go places or meet, have meetups and, and do building. I know there's a gun Builders Club near where I live, but you know, for for most people, like I can't really travel with my modeling stuff. I have three desks full of stuff. Like how you know, I can't take all that stuff with me. So podcast kind of it's a way to make it seem like not seem like not a isolated activity, and I think that is pretty powerful. What other feedback did we get? Well, we got a few things from Ray Davis. David, you know Ray, right? He's from Sydney, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, he's a real kook, so I've been read anything out that he's got to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. He, he had some a couple questions and a tip. His first question is about lighting up sci-fi models. He says he has an old Ravel Colonial Viper that he made many years ago, and he wants to know it was the very first model that he'd ever used weathering on. He says I I would really love to find out how I can refurbish it and light it up. Anybody have any ideas on that? The Colonial Viper is is the coolest model ever. I mean, that's what got me into modeling. That's a great place to start. As far as lighting it, I have purchased lighting kits for my Viper models. And so you can certainly look at purchasing. If you have the experience, you can do your own lighting, you know, wire up your own LEDs and switches and resistors and, you know, those kinds of things. And I think a great suggestion here would be check out YouTube. Doug pointed me to a video by a user named interstellar modeler and he has a pretty good little video there about lighting it up but there's a lot of stuff on there dave any experience lighting up any of your models no it's something i'd want to do for particularly a couple of aircraft carriers i've got sitting around so i wouldn't mind having a crack at it one day sounds like a really good subject for a uh, future podcast guys absolutely yeah. so when you say light up an aircraft carrier like inside so you can see the details in the in the hangars and those kinds of things oh yeah absolutely and when you build an aircraft carrier, the 1200 scale or 1350 scale, things get pretty dark in there unless you get it lit up. So the only way to sort of display all the aircraft and all the equipment um, in the hangar decks is to actually put lighting in there. And quite a few people have done it quite successfully. It's I don't I don't really understand electricity. I mean, you can't see it, touch it, taste it, or smell it. So to me, it's sort of like the dark magic, and I've sort of been a bit weary or leery of actually doing any work in that area but I'd, it's something i want to do into the future uh, back to ray's question where he's asking whether you should crack the old model open and sort of redo it i'd be saying go and buy a new colonial viper and start from scratch because it's going to be pretty hard to retrofit all the lighting and you're going to ruin potentially an old historic model right that you've built in the past and so I'd, I'd start from scratch 
it would be some surgery to to cut it open and oh, yeah. and get all the electronic or electronics in there, especially if you want to work on the cockpit because then you're getting up in that fuselage where it's really really tight. If you can get a hold of a Moebius Colonial Viper a Mark One, that's going to be a, a model that's a lot easier to light. There's a lot more room inside that model. There's just a little bit more space inside to and so that would back Dave's point up of getting a new kit and using that to light it up and and then like Dave mentioned, you'd have your old one that you use for the first time weathering and you know it's it's great to keep builds like that because I think they remind you how far that you've come in the hobby. I mean that's how I feel. TJ, what about uh, you? Have you ever lit up any of your models? I've tried to light a one three fifty scale Bandai Millennium Falcon. I mean I I am no electrical engineer uh, at all and I had to learn a lot of it as I was doing it and I got it to work and except for one of my solder joints I used SMDs for the engines and one of my solder joints failed and that was it I got mad and was like yeah we're done with this and I think I have it somewhere I might have thrown it away I don't remember but well in one 350 scale that thing fits in the palm of your hand so yeah it's really that's tiny. a pretty tall order to light that thing up <laughs> yes yeah, seriously do you have a microscope on your bench buddy that's, that's awesome you, you deserve a you deserve a medal for bravery for that kind of an effort <laughs> Doug, what about you? Have you lit any kit? The only lighting I've ever done, it's on the the last kit that I finished was my Bandai B-Wing. And it came with a little light. It's just a little drop-in, 3-volt battery, watch battery size. It drops in behind the engines. You can pull out the engines, light, turn it on, put it back in, and, and it lights up. They're actually really neat. But there was no no skill involved in wiring that sucker up. Uh, hopefully okay. that answers Ray's first question. What's his next question? He wants to know about making his own decals. He says, I think a lot of people, especially those new to modeling, would love to know that it is possible to make custom decals for their kits. Scott wanted to say something about stencils in this spot, I think. Just to reiterate what I mentioned in the first podcast and what will undoubtedly be reiterated over and over, Scott hates decals. Um, I would do <laughs> I would do anything not to decal a kit. Now, obviously, sometimes, you know, stencils are so tiny or you've got a piece of artwork like nose art on an aircraft, for instance, where you've really got to use a decal but anytime like on a colonial viper this is a great example you could mask those stripes on that model and airbrush those so if you've got the ability to do that maybe consider that you can either do that manually like with some tamiya tape or some pinstriping tape if you know somebody with one of these new cutter machines like silhouettes or crickets my wife has one of those and she kind of gets tired of me i'll get a kit the first thing i do is i take her the decal sheet and ask her to scan it and then clean the artwork up so that I can cut stencils for it. Anyway, that's always an option, but let's answer the question. Who's got experience making custom decals for their kit? I've tried one time and I was not successful. I know it's possible. I've watched a couple YouTube videos on it. That's how I decided to try it and I thought I did everything right, but I didn't and it didn't work. What you can also do and what I would probably recommend is there are people out there that will make custom decals for you that have good, like high quality printers. I think they're like Alps printers yeah. uh, that can like print white and a lot of times it's it's really not that expensive you know so that's something i would look into i mean i know for like wargaming and stuff there's quite a few people out there that will make custom decals for like you know the little figures or whatever but i'm sure most of those people would make anything you sent them dave can you bell us inexperienced yanks out on this uh, point no doing decals is another form of witchcraft so <laughs> <laughs> 
We're going to move on a little bit. He has a tip for us, another one from Ray, about stripping paint back to bare plastic without damaging it. Use a 50-50 solution of water and Detol. Detol, is that how we pronounce it, David? Yeah, Detol, that's fine. Which is Lysol or Pine Sol in the USA. Uh, Leave the model in a big enough container and submerge it overnight. Use a toothbrush to scrub the excess paint while submerged in the solution. Then rinse it under cold water. It works on both acrylic and enamel paint. Thank you very much for that tip. That's handy. Yeah, that's great. I've never Uh, stripped um, paint off or taken it back to bare plastic. You know, if if a model doesn't work, it ends up in in a bin, otherwise known as the well of tears. Um, (laughs) I just just haven't got the time. I mean, once I become frustrated with a model, that's it. It goes. yeah. And I'll go and start another project. I'm not going to bother and strip back and start again. Oh, man. Well, you yeah, know, it sounds, like I, I, it sounds like you're a lot better modeler than I am, but I know stripping paint very, very well. <laughs> <laughs> So, moving on, Jason Gambrell writes in to say he's looking forward to the podcast and he'd like to hear discussion on sci-fi properties like Gundam, Star Wars, Star Trek, Space 2001, and even some anime properties like Macross. That's coming. We're going to be talking about that stuff a lot. He'd also yeah. like to see and hear a beginner's guide to the hobby. Actually, that's that's perfect because that's one of the things we want to focus on. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Josh Buck wrote in to say it would be cool to hear from folks that made models from ships of ships from sci-fi movies that didn't have mass-run kits. He also sent some pictures of his bench and aircraft models. Another thing that we would like to discuss in the future, anybody that has any ideas for what they would like to hear, feel free to tell us because we would like to know. We'd like to give you all what you want to hear. Yeah, one of the kits that I know Doug has often wanted is the uh, ship from the last Gunstar. Last, last Starfighter. Uh, last Starfighter, Star. sorry. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome to see that. Any sci-fi subjects that we don't have mass-produced uh, models of that you guys would like to see? I think we talked about it. We might have been off the air one time, the shuttle oh yeah the shuttle yeah yeah yeah, just the imperial shuttle uh i would love 70 second scale if possible uh kit from that you know i would settle for a 144th one yeah one 144th scale but if bandai does it i would be eternally grateful because that is such a cool looking uh, little spacecraft well there there was a kit made a long time ago and it was enormous and it was very difficult to make work the old mpc kit Mm -hmm. i think we all just got a shiver on the back of our necks (laughs) dave do you do do you do any sci-fi modeling? Anything that you're keen to maybe have a have a go at? Um, yeah, look, I do some sci-fi stuff. I've got some Bandai Star Wars kits floating around, and a couple of odd Japanese kits um, also floating around from some anime series. I think. Um, I think mostly you can get a model of whatever you've seen on a TV show or a movie somewhere, even if it's 3D printed or, or been done in resin. So there is there is a, a cottage industry out there that caters for it, but it's you've really got to dig right down into the specialist areas of that particular TV show or movie or indeed the modeling community to sort of find it. It's not easy to find necessarily, but they are out there. I think that's a great point. You know, I've just recently obtained a uh, 120th scale of the Thunderfighter from the old 70s Buck Rogers in the 25th century series that is a great kit 3D printed from a model maker out of Canada named Elaine Rivard and I also he has just announced a 148th scale Clone Wars Y-Wing which is an earlier version of the the Y-Wing that is seen in the movies from the Clone Wars cartoons and it's quite a bit different and and I'm going to pick one of those up as well. Dave's got a great point. If you look on Facebook and look around there's quite 
quite a bit of model makers out there that are making resin kits, limited run kits, 3D printed kits. And of course, there's always more and more coming out of Japan. If it's anime, you, you can probably find a Japanese kit of it somewhere. We've got a couple of shout outs. One from Tom Stewart telling us what a great part podcast it was and hard to believe it was our first. As I stumble over my words, it's hard to believe that was our first too. Um, <laughs> Steve Schaefer also uh, wrote in. He said, I just finished listening to your, and you guys did fantastic. I'd never guess it was your first time. You're very down to earth and you have a very down to earth way of talking about the hobby. Hell, I even dig your theme music. Well, thank you very much. We bought that ourselves. Yes. Um, I love hearing that there are still things that intimidate others in the hobby too. Great interview and great show. Nice job. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. Welcome to the posse and thank you for the feedback. Please, as Doug mentioned, continue to comment. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like, uh, what you'd like us to talk about. Come on in and participate. Be a member of the posse and uh, like Dave, we'll see if we can uh, maybe send you a hat or a badge. <laughs> we have to invest in cowboy hats, guys. Yeah. Well, just a badge would be fine. A nice badge saying you're part of the posse would be awesome. <laughs> that would be. That would be great. I mean, well, we got to work on that. So what's uh what's on everyone's bench? I know um on my bench I still have the Tamiya KB1 since last we passed the station. Still in the exact same spot that it was the last time I talked about it. But you know what? That's not true. I think I bumped it yesterday when I was getting something <laughs> that was behind it. But it more or less is in the same spot. I also have a ironclad dreadnought for my Space Marine army for 40k. It's uh it's all beat up and kind of cool looking. I normally don't weather my uh, gaming figures because I don't feel like taking the time to do it, but this guy he looked like he needed it. And then I have his big brother that I've got primed up, and I'm also gonna weather him, so I've got a chipping coat down on him. I have a big huge hovering tank that I've half primed, and I'll probably finish priming after we finish recording this. What about you, Scott? What do you got? Well, before I get to that, I. I just want to kind of kick it back to TJ. Check out our Facebook page, all you listeners out there, and check out this piece that uh, I, I call it Stompy McStomperson because I, I, I don't know the Warhammer, uh, you know, lingo yet and whatever. But when TJ says it's kind of cool, it, it's a beautiful piece. And yeah, I think, Dave, you even commented online about it, um, the weathering on it and everything is really beautiful. Oh, absolutely. It's an uber cool kit. It's really been very well painted and built. So oh, thank you. I, I, I was drooling over it when I looked at it. I, I, <laughs> love, I love the olive that you the olive drab you got in there. It just looks gorgeous. Thanks. And then also, um, you didn't mention it, but I wanted to give you a chance here to discuss. You were uh, doing some miniature painting for a, a charity that you're involved with. You want to talk about that for a minute? Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot, I forgot to mention that. So there's a guy named Scott who has a YouTube channel called Miniac. Um, he's Scott the Miniature Maniac. He's a, a really talented painter. Uh, recently, he crossed 100,000 subs on YouTube, which is wow. impressive, I think, nice. for anybody, let alone someone that you know does something as obscure as this. So he decided to put together a charity for the Nova Open Charitable Foundation, which is the charitable arm of a local gaming convention here in the Northern Virginia area that started, you know, like most conventions did, really small, like literally in the guy's backyard and now is probably the largest gaming miniature and tabletop gaming convention on the East Coast. Unfortunately, it was not held this year, like most things, but they continue to hold their auctions. So people donate miniatures and all the way from single 
most like the best painted miniature like works of art miniatures that are only for display to functional armies for various games well scott decided but he teamed up with them the nova open charitable foundation and they put together four armies for warhammer 40,000, and he did a video about it and you could sign up to paint like uh, a squad of base marines or a tank for uh, you know whatever particular army so i signed up to paint a squad of sisters of battle which are essentially female space marines there's i mean that's kind of what i would call them they're they're cool they're a little bit smaller than a normal space marine but um yeah so i'm, I'm looking forward to that I, i've got i think five weeks to do it maybe six weeks so it's only 10 figures and it's kind of not necessarily a, a speed paint but it's not you, you don't have to paint it to like dis- display quality as long as it's you know looks nice so yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to that so i uh, probably get started on that with the coming because weekend because those of us in the united states we have labor day i, I want to say this coming weekend so i'll have a three-day weekend and i'll probably knock out most of it then but yeah thank, thanks for bringing that up scott uh i forgot about that as you're painting those i put some updates on the page so we can check it out i, I really like uh, your painting and excited to see what those look like oh yeah these girls will be cool they're in a, a red and black color scheme so it's pretty um pretty stark it's i think it's gonna be really neat well as far as uh, my modeling goes i'm still working on that little polar light shenju uh you know i'm gonna walk back you know it hasn't been my favorite kid it's 26 parts it's not great plastic it has it's really all about the decals which everybody knows how much i love those i'm doing that in the spirit in episode one we talked quite several times about modeling outside our comfort zone and so i've been doing this project just to you know do something i'm uncomfortable with which is decaling the entire finish of this little starship is all in the decals you know there's azteking and all these different panels there's two great big huge decal sheets with the kit so i'm about halfway done through the decaling phase of that and and i gotta say you know for what it is it doesn't look too bad so when i'm done with that i'll pop a couple of little pictures out on our facebook page and let you guys decide and see what you think i have got on my bench two things that i've worked on since our last the last time i checked in uh one is the uh warhammer 40k lehman rust battle tank um that my son asked me to build for him i've gotten it to paint sealed that paint and i've been throwing a little muck on it and i'm gonna get into chipping probably tonight i also have the Tamiya 135th scale Sherman Easy 8 and that's at the same spot. I actually have both of those ready to start to start uh, dirtying up, chipping a little bit. I won't go too heavy on the chipping with the Sherman. You just don't see too much of that on the Shermans. That's where I'm at and that's I'm, I'm having fun with this. I also have that Gundam that I've got. I haven't really done anything with that since we talked last. The hella good. The hella good Gundam uh, <laughs> Gundam uh, whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called. I gotta <laughs> learn this stuff, man. Hey, that those Warhammer kits are really cool to build up. You're just sort of slapping together. You don't really have to worry about uh, too much about the seams because all the joy and fun is in the uh, painting and the weathering. It really yeah. is. And I was saying, I think I said last time, they have one drawback, which is in a lot of cases, there's no aligning tabs. So you kind of have to guess sometimes where exactly you want it. But you can make those decisions and move things even in different places, which kind of makes it a little easier to make unique for yourself. So have fun with it. Yeah. Is that something, Dave, you might consider sometimes? is painting a Warhammer subject, a figure, or a tank, or a vehicle? I've actually done two. I've oh, done a, nice. Um, I think it was a Blood Angels uh, tank of some description, and I did a, um, a Blitzer bomber. Oh, oh, those are cool. Very cool. Yeah. Very those are cool. cool. Yeah. And I found, I found, actually, they were, they were really great to sort of, um, when I hit a, um, lost my mojo, and just went out and bought these kits and, and just dived into them, and it was 
you can build with that. The trouble with military builds is that sometimes you get so hooked up on, you know, uh, making sure the kit's assembled 100% correct with no seam showing or you got the paint down pat. Whereas if you build something like um, a Warhammer Blitzer Bomb or something like that, you just build it and then you just paint it for the for the heck of it and it really gets you back into the modeling um, again. It really gets the creative juices flowing. Yeah, that I mean that's the probably the best part about that because you there's no wrong way to paint it, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's a, exactly. There just isn't. You can yeah. paint it any way you want. It doesn't matter. As as exciting as I am, I paint everything olive drab. You know, <laughs> oh, let, me, let me pick the most hey. bland color on the planet and paint literally everything that. That's well, not beige. <laughs> Dave, that's a that's a great point. Using maybe a a subject or a genre that you're not normally modeling in as a palette cleanser, as a mojo booster, is something that I I think is really important for any modeler. Like you said, especially the military modelers, guys that are super passionate. You know, last time we had an interview with John Bonani, and he's an armor builder, and he mentioned this, you know, and he said, you know, I built a Yog Tiger, and it was three three one, and it's a really very famous tank. It's very well photographed, very well documented. And, you know, I just pour my heart and soul into getting every color and shade exactly right, pouring over the photos. And what a great break to take, um, you know, a Warhammer subject or whatever it may be, and just build a kit kind of for the fun of it and just enjoy the experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Dave, what is on your bench? Well, I'm going on a real space kick at the moment. So currently on my bench, I've got a... uh, one semi-second scale Mercury Redstone. I've just finished building the uh, Mercury capsules, a couple of them, Very and cool. it's just a real lot of fun, and I'm enjoying it. And I'm spending heaps of money buying kits I didn't know existed to sort of <laughs> round out the collection and the build. Nice. So, yeah, it's, it, it's just really, really cool, and it's just really getting me... So I don't know why... I, what happened was I was sitting watching TV, we just recently had the um, anniversary of the moon landing mm-hmm. and the Apollo program, and thought, gee, I've got a rocket. That'd be really cool to build one. Um, ended up tracking down. There's a, a, a guy in Australia who actually does Atlas and uh, Mercury rockets in one semi-second scale, Horizon Models. I bought his entire catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. And, um, and the kits are really good. And it's very hard to come across rockets in one semi-second scale. There are a few out there, but they're very hard to sort of come by. Most of them are in um, smaller scales, like one 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 forty-fourth scale, one four hundredth scale, which is a bit of an odd one. Detail is extremely good, actually, for the scale that it's in. And let's face it, there's nothing else out there in this scale anyway. But they go together really well. The trouble with building a rocket is you've got nowhere to hide with that seam. So you've really got to pay a lot of attention to the seam and and make sure that it completely disappears. But there's no... Anybody who's built, uh, say, a submarine or done an aircraft fuselage won't have any trouble with this. It's uh, The kit goes together quite well. The kits, I should say, go together quite well. It's funny because I also bought a... I thought, well, if I'm buying a Mercury and if I've done a... If I've done the Redstone and I've um, done the Atlas or building the Atlas, I need to get the, the Apollo. And so I went and bought myself a Dragon one semi-second scale Apollo. Oh, God. That's oh, wow. Cool. That is a, that is a big it, model. <laughs> I'm a constant scale builder, so all my ships are in 1350 scale. All my armor is going to be in you know, 135th scale. I like to put the models next to each other to get a size comparison. And you 
just don't realise how big the Apollo rocket is until you put it next to, say, a Mercury Redstone or an Atlas rocket. This thing is huge. Yeah. I've seen uh, some of the photos um, on the On the Bench uh, site there on Facebook of the, of some of those rockets. I haven't seen your Apollo, but uh, those other two you mentioned, I've seen photos of those, and it uh, looks like you're building a V2 as well. Yeah, well, the V2 was sort of the first leading rocket, really, wasn't it? So I thought, oh, I've yeah. got to do that as well. I think under Operation Paperclip, uh, you guys took a whole lot of Germans back to the US after the Second World War, and they, um, they built a lot of V2 rockets, which was your basis for your sort of interballistic cruise missiles and also your space program. Um, von Braun was there. Yeah. And <laughs> I, yeah, Albert Einstein and Werner, Werner von Braun. And have you guys done any real space modeling? Is it something you're interested in? I'll go ahead and jump in here, Doug. I yes, I I am that little kid that was obsessed with rockets and the space shuttle forever. Right, like it's one of my favorite things. And, you know, I, I think that's a really underrepresented uh, genre of modeling. I, I know there's some out there, but I do know that there's not really like a quality space shuttle kit, like, like a full with the boosters and the liquid fuel tank and the, the orbiter. You know, I know I think there's maybe one full model and from what I've seen, it's, it's not the best. So yeah, I, I love real space and I like real space modeling. The, the only thing I've built is the Hasegawa Voyager space probe with the full photo etch, photo etch set. I think it was from Edward and it was really cool. I, I haven't painted it cause I'm kind of nervous about painting all this photo etch cause it's literally covered in photo etch including the big i think it was a 40 foot long boom that like sticks off the side of it that's also photo etch that is i soldered and twisted a little bit it doesn't have enough twist that it should but it's close enough then i also have dragons 172nd scale moon landing kit that comes with the limb and the command module and like the little the little moon base i bought that right when i was kind of really getting into kits like right after i've realized that like oh i could actually build something other than you know a warhammer kit so i bought it and i opened it and i was like oh this is way too way too hard for me i don't know what the hell i'm doing so <laughs> it's just been sitting on my shelf ever since but you know when we had the the 50th anniversary i think it was last year yeah last year i got it out and i was like i should really build this and i did not unfortunately i, I want to one day because it it is really cool it's apollo so what's there you know what's there not to love yeah exactly yeah. right i've got i've got a similar kit to that i've got the um dragon with the apollo approach which is the um, command module and the lem as it heads to the moon and i'm actually planning i've i've, I've been working on how do you replicate that sort of gold look on it and i've gone and bought myself some gold leaf to try and attach to it to see how that works so that'd be an interesting little exercise have you oh, have yeah, you tried that's that really cool have you tried no, it yet no i haven't but i mean you know I mean, for goodness sake, we've been putting gold leaf on buildings for centuries and centuries, so it should work on get on plastic, shouldn't it? That was kind of like one of my big hangups when I first opened it, and I was like looking at it and realized I'm like, oh, that's right, this thing. I've seen the 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 mock-up one at the Air and Space Museum. This thing's covered in in like foil, right? I'm like, I, I don't know how to paint that. I don't have anything like that. I mean, back then, I, all I was using was water-based acrylics, so I was like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You need to get that um, satellite painted too. That the um, photo which will take the paint really easy. You shouldn't be afraid of that. Just dive in and do it. Yeah, I want to because I mean it's like three colors, so it's really kind of not going to be that hard. But it is. It's so cool. The Voyager looks awesome. And I want to say I think Hasegawa also has a Hubble space telescope kit. 
I don't know if it can be found really anymore or how good it is, but I'd be interested in that too because the Hubble's awesome. What scale yeah. was that? Was was that in? Do you remember the Hubble yeah. or the the Voyager? The Voyager. Voyager is one forty eighth. Ah, see, wrong scale. Damn, yeah, but well, it's pretty small as one forty eighth. So I, if it was one seventy second, it'd be really tiny. <laughs> I mean, like the the fourteen inch high gain antenna. It's I want to say on the kit, it's only in real life it was fourteen feet. So in the kit, it's well, like a couple inches, if that. I mean, it's it's pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> Doug, any interest in real space subjects or any definitely, experience building those? Definitely has some interest as far as experience. When I was nine or ten years old, my grandfather gave me a 140, 144 scale uh, Saturn V Apollo. E- at that age, uh, even the way I butchered kits, I couldn't get that thing to work. It was too big for me. There was there was just too many too many things to go wrong for for someone with no experience. But I had it, and it was impressive. Even even to me at the time, yeah, I'd, I'd love to to get my hands on something something like that one of these days. Any idea, Dave, what the finished dimensions of that rocket's go, going to be in one seventy second scale? Is that you know three feet tall? Is it taller than that? I mean, it's got to be big. Oh no, it stands pretty tall. I think it's um, touching four foot. Tell you the truth, I'd have I, to go I, back and check the uh, dimensions in the box, but it's not far off that. Someone at my um, IPMS club brought one in a couple years ago and i want to say he had it he didn't have it on the table he had it like, like we we have ours at a school so we have like the school like cafeteria tables you guys know like with the benches attached to it i think he had it sitting on the bench so a little bit lower than the table and it was taller than me i'm six feet tall and i had to look up to like look at the you know where the capsule is and i was like wow that's, that is really cool I, I don't know where he where he puts it i don't know where i would put mine if i had one but yeah that thing has got to be huge yeah it demands its own special display case once you've finished building it yeah you know, one of the things that we talked about in our last episode that we would uh, discuss here is a discussion on paint and uh, today i think we want to talk about starting to lay a foundation because it's such a huge subject you know it's going to take i would imagine pieces of several different episodes you know let's talk about be the different types of paint that we use specifically for airbrushing it's very different the types of paints that you're going to want to use for airbrushing versus regular paint brushing they do different things you know they're different properties and everything so yeah let's uh, let's talk about that I, what i've done is i've broken down the paints that we use for airbrushing into several different types and uh, let's talk about each one of those the first one is acrylics and uh, traditionally these paints are water or alcohol based they're generally more environmentally friendly than other types of paint so uh, our listeners out there if you live in an apartment or if you don't have access to a garage or a shed or somewhere where you can paint without infuriating your family members or you know people you cohabitate with uh, these might be a good solution for you that's kind of the upside the downside is they're usually harder to work with pure acrylics in, in an airbrushing um, setup you get tip dry on most of these it's consistently a problem especially if you're in a dry climate and the other thing is where it's water-based a lot of time the finishes can be fragile on your model so you know they might uh, as you're
you're handling the model, maybe doing the weathering, you know, you might get pieces of it that might flake off a little bit easier than some of the other types of paints that we'll talk about here in a moment. Um, and then some of the examples of these are Tamiya acrylics when you use their um, alcohol X20A thinner. MIG makes uh, some of those. AK Ammo makes a large range of those. Vallejo makes the Model Air uh, paints that are water-based and designed to be airbrushed. Uh, Mission Models is a, a new player in the market. I don't have any experience with those myself. And then Goons makes um, a Mr. Hobby Aqueous line uh, that is water-based. So um, have you guys, any of you guys, uh, do you use these just water-based acrylics in your airbrushing work? I'll, I'll start. Sometimes. I, I prefer not to. As I've talked about before, you know, when I started in the hobby, I started with Warhammer stuff. And, you know, in, in that realm, it's, you know, water-based acrylics or nothing. You know, Games Workshop, Citadel paints are all water-based acrylics. So that's what I felt comfortable with. So when I decided to start airbrushing, you know, I went with Vallejo Model Air because that's what everyone on the Internet and the forums and stuff said to use. So, of course, I bought pretty much the whole set, you know, not all at once. Because, you know, why save money when you could just, you know, buy them all separately and pay more money? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I've done that. You know, I'll use them because now that I've kind of moved past that into some of these other paints that we're going to talk about, I, I'm not going to throw them away. You know, I spent a lot of money on them and they're still they're still perfectly fine. And you can use them with a brush, which is helps, too. But, you know, some of these uh, like Vallejo paints and some other water-based acrylics, I, I don't have an equivalent for a paint that I would like uh, that I would prefer to airbrush, especially like uh, skin tones and stuff like that. And just some of the more off the wall colors, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't like using them, but I will. And, you know, if you know what you're doing and you take your time, they'll work. They're not as good as, as lacquers or, or some of these other ones, but I mean, they're not, they're not bad. Doug, any experience with these water-based acrylics, airbrushing? Um, other than when I tried using Tamiya paints uh, with uh, uh, alcohol, rubbing alcohol, I tried that. It worked okay. I also, the first time I tried switching from enamels to acrylics was the Model Master Acro line, and oh my gosh, oh. I'm shuddering. I'm shuddering while I oh. talk. I mean, it's, oh, it's horrible. Um, yes, safety tip for all you new modelers out there. Even if anyone gives you Model Master Acro, run away. Run away very, very quickly <laughs> and, and you know, maybe take up stamp collecting. Just seriously, stay away from that stuff. Dave, what, what's your experience been with airbrushing kind of traditional water-based acrylics? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, Tamiya, uh, the old uh, Tamiya acrylics and also Guns as well. I've had an experience with Mission Models, and it's a fairly a fairly new range yet at the moment, which I'm intrigued about. Vallejo, and um, I've got them sort of floating around. I sort of use them now if I just need to do a bit of touch-up brush painting uh, more than anything. And still got a heap of uh, the guns around, the heap of the Tamiya around as well. But they both of them spray so well. I, I tend to find the ones that are idiot-proof. That's the ones I aim for and use yeah. the most. I haven't, yeah. got time, I haven't got time to muck around trying to make different ratios or or doing something to make the paint work better. My opinion is if you're spending this much money on paint, which let's think about it, it's not that cheap 
per bot. He should work first time every time. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to end up in the well of tears. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's a great point. And I think uh, traditional acrylics are, you know, where a lot of modelers that are new to the hobby can get very, very frustrated, like with mission models. And, and you know, I'm just going to go on what I've heard. You know, what I've heard is those paints spray very, very well, dot, 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 once you figure out the chemistry that's involved, because they do have issues with tip dry. They do have issues with being difficult to airbrush. In some climates, there's certain days that you can't airbrush them because it's either too humid or not humid enough, those kinds of things. And so for that reason, I don't really airbrush the water-based acrylics very often, just because like you, my time is valuable. I want something that works and is bulletproof every time. You know, I will agree with what you said about using these water-based acrylics and you see it like on on uh, the internet all the time. Oh, I tried to use this Vallejo paint and yeah, I couldn't get anything. And then everyone chimes in with their own magic recipe. Oh, well, you need you need three drops of thinner, and then you need two drops of water, and you need a drop and a half of flow improver. And then if you spin around in a circle three times to the left, then it works just fine. Yeah, sacrifice then, sacrifice a chicken to the gods. And, yeah, yeah, I'm like, just how about just go buy a bottle of Tamiya paint and some lacquer thinner, and you won't ever have to worry about it. It's it's really that easy. Let's move on to uh, enamel paint. There for a long time, I would say through the 1980s, through probably the mid-2000s, these were really very popular with modelers. They're losing popularity now, and I think there's primarily two reasons. Number one, enamels have really long drying times, especially as compared to the acrylic lacquer hybrids, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Sometimes enamels can take days or even weeks to dry completely. And I think the other the other key here, and I want to make sure that we talk about this. The other reason why I I think that enamels are losing popular as paint uh, for your models is almost all of the new weathering products that are coming out from Ammo and AK and all of these, they are all enamel based. And when you weather, you want to traditionally, you want to weather with a dissimilar material than you painted with, because the last thing you want to do is put the same type of weathering medium over your paint, because it'll just eat into the paint job. You can always barrier coat it, but those are extra steps to do that. And so because of that, I think that's a big reason why um, they're not as popular. The two big manufacturers, uh, at least here in the States, and Dave, maybe you can talk to this, of enamel paints were Testers and then from England, uh, Humbrol, and they are either phasing out or have phased out almost all of their enamel paint lines uh, for modelers. You know, that's kind of the, the ins and out. I think they're easy to use overall uh, but again their drying time and then the fact that they have the same chemistry as weathering products is is what's making those not popular uh what's your experience been dave um i haven't actually used testers before but when my when i first sort of discovered modeling as a kid humble was the only thing you could get your hands on trying to open those stupid little tins with a screwdriver you'd end up with half the paint <laughs> <laughs> or when you did actually open it up you'd find everything dry inside so like a little uh, desiccated sort of bit of pigment. I've, I've never been a, a huge fan of enamels, and although I do still have a few enamels, which was from a specialty manufacturer, uh, White Ensign model to deal in particular um, colour chips for warships that are hard to come by. That's about the only 
enamels off the lift yeah dave over at plastic model mojo uh, is a is a huge enamel fan and i guess uh, white ends and models is now a company called color coats and he still uses um enamels to spray his aircraft with yeah um, but well with dave there's now a can for good taste so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys still use enamels or or have you kind of moved away from them where are you guys at it's been a long time since I gave up the the Model Master enamels, I switched over to to the uh, the hybrids and and I've been happy ever since. I just I just have no desire to go back. TJ, do you use them? I have used enamel paints one time in my life, and it was a very very particular reason for it. I was filling in the stamp marks on a receiver on a firearm. That was oh, okay. literally the only reason why I own some, because I thought it would look cool, put a little paint in there, liven it up, and I read on the internet that's how to do it. It worked, and then I threw those enamels away because I was like, well, I'm not going to use these ever. So yeah, I've never painted a model with them, like straight enamel, other than like enamel weathering products. So yeah, I can't really speak to that one. I'm, I might be a little too young for that one. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the case. I like 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 Doug. I used to use the testers enamels, the Model Master line for a long time. Never the Humbrol, and it was you know Dave, you mentioned it, and we kind of laughed, but it's true. I hated those tins. I mean, it was so hard to get the paint in and out of those tins. The way that the lids were on them, it was just a pain in the ass, and so I just never wanted to use them because of that. Oh, I know. Um, it. I know. But you know, we we we'd airbrush a model aircraft in enamel, and you know, we'd set it on the bench to wait for the paint to dry. And two weeks later, you could still smell it off gassing; it didn't dry. <laughs> And then, like I mentioned before, with all the weathering products I'm using, I use oil paint washes that are thin with mineral spirits and the pre-made uh, weathering products that are all enamel-based. Yeah, I just I just don't paint with them anymore. So I, I, I would say that's we're all kind of on the same page there. We're going to talk about now true lacquers. There really aren't many true lacquers that are being used for modeling. You know, there's some specialty manufacturers like Skillcoat does a lot of true lacquer paints for model railroad subjects. The thing thing about true lacquers is they have a really nice bite into the plastic and that can be good and bad. The the, the good part of that is they're going to be really durable and they're going to bite into that plastic and, and you know, you're not going to be able to rub them off or chip them off. But the downside of that is I've seen modelers use these products and actually damage the plastic. You know, a lot of lacquers are used in automotive paint and those types of things. Most spray paints in the past were, were true lacquers. The Model Master sprays, the Tamiya sprays, a lot of those are still lacquers. And then now Tamiya is coming out with, for airbrushing, a new series of true lacquer paints called the LP series. Dave, you've got some experience with those, don't you? Oh my God, I swear, when you, as, it, as the paint's coming out of the end of the airbrush, you can almost hear a choir singing in the background. Dries <laughs> <laughs> quickly, it is, to, if you can get it in the US, definitely have a crack at it because it is the most gorgeous paint to actually spray with, apart from another one which we'll talk about later. But it just goes down gorgeous, dries super quick. You just you've got to use the actual uh, Tamiya LP uh, thinner uh, with it. I wouldn't recommend sort of using anything else, but it just 
rise beautifully. You guys use uh, true lacquers on your models? Never, ever. No, I don't think I have. I mean, maybe like a some tummy of. I think they have lacquer spray paint, don't they? Yeah, they do. I think I've used some of that before. That's that's as close as I've ever gotten. I am looking forward to the LP series, which yeah, I don't think they're available in the U.S. yet. They yeah, might be. Yeah, I could be yeah. wrong. Don't don't quote me on that. But well, the last uh, category, which I think uh, most of us are going to be, uh, you know, using, are what what I'm going to call hybrids. They're acrylic lacquer, so you've got acrylic paint, but rather than being water based or alcohol based, like you know the true that kind of traditional acrylics are. These are thinned with uh, lacquer and uh, they become really, really popular in just the last five to 10 years. The number of manufacturers that are using these and, and the number of lines that have sprung up has been really tremendous. So, you know, you've got MRP from Central Europe, which is great. From Dave's Neck of the Woods, you have uh, SMS acrylic lacquers. The Goons Mr. Hobby paints are acrylic lacquers. The AK Real Color acrylic lacquers, which TJ Doug and I really are big fans of. And then the Tamiya acrylics can be thinned with either Tamiya's lacquer thinner or other lacquer thinners like the Goon's leveling thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the, those are all examples of those. But acrylic lacquers are are really wonderful. Now, the downside of the acrylic lacquer is they tend to really, really smell. They have very strong perfumes. They're not as uh, friendly on the environment. You need to make sure, especially you new modelers, that you're using safety equipment. We use uh, spray booths and uh, I I think we all have uh, ventilator masks as well. And you want to spray those in an area that isn't going to offend, again, the people that you uh, you live with in your house uh, because they can be very, very strong. But other than that, the upside is they're wonderful. They're, they're, they're almost, to use Dave's term, they're almost black magic. They're almost foolproof. They spray very, very thin. They atomize really nicely and they dry almost instantly. I mean, you can you can be painting a, an aircraft and paint one wing, and by the time you go to paint the other wing, the first wing's already dry. I mean, they're just, they're really fantastic products. What's been, what's your, your experience been on these, Dave? Pretty much used all of them. Uh, by far, my favorite ones at the moment, which I've got a lot of now, is um, the SMS paint range, and also still got the, uh, a lot of the Tamiya acrylics. The SMS ones are great. They're straight out of the bottle. You don't have to do any mixing at all, and particularly the guys who do a lot of uh, Warhammer stuff and uh, sci-fi stuff. The SMS paints have a huge range of pearl colors and color shifts and crystal pearls, and for some reason, all the sci-fi guys seem to sort of wet their pants over that, and they're just laughing it up. It's, um, <laughs> it's perfect for uh, doing those really oddball sort of kits. But yeah, Guns, I've got that. It's a, you know, a staple, but, and same with uh, Hataka range. I haven't had much success with it, but somehow it doesn't seem to work down here because we're some part of the world or something, I don't know. Um, but, I'm, but as I said, the SMS is straight out and it works first time every time. I've got no complaints at all. Uh, my go-to is AK Real Color. Um, I talked about that in the last episode when John was asking me about the Sherman that I built. That was, I had been using them often before that, but that was, I think that might've been the first 35th scale, you know, large, fairly large kit that I built and painted with just pretty much AK real color and thinning it with Mr. Leveling thinner. It is amazing. I, I, I like MRP. I have a handful of colors. I think I've done, I think I have, I like their Russian 4BO green. It's yeah, it's, uh, it's probably one, probably the best, you know, Russian 4BO, which is a dark green. I don't know why everyone thinks it's like some 
bright apple green, but it's not. It's dark green, and exactly. theirs is fantastic. I did a um, ISU one fifty two that I never finished, and then my cat knocked off a shelf last week. So uh, that one oh. might not ever be finished. Oh, that was a good you looking know, model. This is why you don't oh. have cats. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've got three of them, and only one of them's ever the problem. <laughs> Um, my pets but, never knock a model off the shelf i'll tell you what um and and i also you know so i went from water-based acrylics to tamia to everything else you know the mrp and and ak real color so i have i have almost the entire range of tamia paints too which thanks to scale modelers critique group on facebook i learned to thin it with mr leveling thinner so now that's the only thing i thin it with and i still i use a fair amount of, of tamia thin with um mr leveling thinner too and it's really good. I, I I do I do like that. Doug, what do you use? Mostly Tamiya or Tamiya and uh, AK Real Color. I've given Mr. Paint MRP uh, a chance, and it's wonderful stuff. It takes quite a few coats to get it to to get the level of paint that I want on there. But because I don't thin that, um, I can't stretch it out as much as I can the other the others. I can take a Tamiya uh, paint or a, or an AK Real Color jar and thinning it down with as many coats as I tend to put on a kit. I can make that last a long, long time. I prefer the real color because of their color selection. But usually when I do my Star Wars kits, every one of them has a slightly different shade of gray. You probably can't tell by the awful pictures I post. But but what I do is I start with Tamiya, flat white, and I add tiny bits of black or sky gray and maybe a little deck tan till I get that shade of gray that I really like for that particular uh, ship. And then that's what I use. So every time, every every model I start, I start with a bottle of Tamiya flat white and turn it into whatever color I want. Because Tamiya doesn't have a good range of really light grays. But luckily for most, especially in armor modeling, there's somebody out there that has compiled whatever nationality you like to model. Someone has a good list of how to make whatever color you need. I know... Like for British World War II armor, Mike Starmer, I think that's how you say his last name. He yeah. has uh, Tommy mixes for every SSC color and all the other colors that, that the British Army used because they had quite a few that are probably as close as you can get. And I'm sure there's some others out there, but as a British World War II armor fan, that's who to go to. So it's kind of a pain, but you know it's not too bad. If if you're doing like a couple of tanks, you know you can mix up a, a bottle of it. That way you have like I made a SEC two brown bottle off of his. So a little extra step, but it gives you a nice color. The one thing that the acrylic lacquer hybrids are not generally very good at is brush painting. And so if you want to buy a paint that's equally as good for brush painting as it is for airbrushing. Um, most of these aren't going to be that solution for you though so that might be something to keep in mind hopefully that's helpful for everybody we'll we'll be talking more about the other aspects of painting the episodes uh, coming up so uh, we look forward to that but yeah hopefully uh, that's helpful to kind of divide those up into the types of paint that are out there and if you're new kind of wondering what you you know might want to get maybe that'll help you make your decisions on those types of products uh how about hobby shop shout outs did we get any uh, in since uh, last episode? We absolutely did. The Hobby Shop shoutouts. Um, I would like to ask first, Dave, do you have any specific of your 150 hobby stores in your area? <laughs> um, do, do you have any one in particular that you especially love, or is there or are there just a number of them? Oh, there's just a number of them. Each one has different sort of specialties and things that they do. And Sanachi, if you ask me to pick 
one to take away on a desert island, I'd be hard pressed. <laughs> right, right, and you know you don't want to offend the rest of them, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly well known <laughs> here, so I've got to be fairly um, even-handed across the entire spread. Absolutely. Okay, all so right. Dave, Dave wants to shout out the entire country of Australia, all the hobby shops. <laughs> all the hobby They're, all, they're all great. <laughs> Uh, Steve Schaefer, he was our first responder. He said, we're lucky enough here in the Twin Cities to have two great hobby shops. First is the Scale Me- scale Model Supplies in St. Paul, Minnesota. They're in the basement of a building in a space that used to be a bowling alley. They have one of the largest stocks of kits I've ever seen in a great train section. We also have Hub Hobby with two locations in Richfield, Minnesota and Little Canada, Minnesota. They have more of a focus on RC, but have one of the biggest stocks of Goompla outside of Japan. Dana Michi says B&B Hobbies in Spokane, that's Spokane, Washington, has been in business since 1965 with a huge selection and an awesome staff. B&B is a great place to get lost in. I've been a customer here since a child and always check with them before looking elsewhere. If you ever make it to Spokane in the eastern Washington state, be sure to stop and get lost amongst the boxes of styrene. Let's see, we've got one more that's dropped since we first talked. Paul Castro, a shout out to Airworks in Adelaide, South Australia. Craig has a wide variety of plastic kits and supplies and is always willing to order anything extra you want, but could not find it. He has a special 10% discount for all members of a local club, the SAPMA, South Australian Plastic Modelers Association. And last but not least, this may not be a local hobby shop, but our friend Warren Starrett says there just aren't any, any options in Northern Ireland anymore. So he would like to shout out the scale model shop in the UK is second to none. Yeah, that's a mail order shop. Uh, well, I think we're kind of coming to the end here. Uh, we've kept uh, Dave captive for quite a while. We really appreciate uh, his willingness to sit in with us. It's it's been a good time here. Uh, so, uh, TJ, what do you what should we talk about in our next episode? In our next episode, we're going to continue on painting and maybe talk about some brush painting, maybe some brush painting techniques, what paint works good for brush painting, which we kind of already touched on, but there's a little bit more to it than just sticking your, your paintbrush in a pot of paint and slapping it on the model. So we'll probably get into that and look from, look forward to having a, another guest interview and uh, some quality discussion. We're still looking for listener feedback. Become a member of the Posse. We'll share that feedback on every episode. Dave, before you go, one other question. What's it like working with Ian and Julian? Uh, they're great couple of those two you got um ian is um just like to hear him in the show he's actually an old um headbanger or you know metal sort of music guy from way back and um he's just a, such a funny guy and julian is exactly what you'd expect him to be very sort of dry and he's got this sort of underlying wicked sense of humor that is extremely subtle so it's quite amusing that um the way they work together. That's awesome. Listener feedback. Become a member of the Posse. We're going to share that feedback on every episode. Maybe not all of it, but as many as we can squeeze in. You might be on a future podcast with us. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what questions uh, you have for us and other podcast members, suggestions. Hey, tell us what your favorite hockey team is. Please. (laughs) (laughs) And whatever you think is cool. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. Awesome. And, and again, you can leave that feedback on our Facebook page, uh, Plastic Posse Podcast. Or if email's more your speed, you can hit us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. You know, keep, as Doug and uh, TJ said, you know, keep giving us that feedback. You know, post some pictures of your builds or your figures. We love to see that. And uh, I think it really makes the site a lot of fun. Um, I want to give a shout out to On The Bench. They've got a great Facebook page as well. Uh, Dave and the guys do a 
great job keeping, uh, you know, their kind of listeners up to date on what projects they're doing. And then Plastic Model Mojo and Scale Model Podcast, they have good Facebook pages as well where you can catch up with them and their listeners and see what they're up to. Um, we want you guys to continue to support those other podcasts uh, and uh, keep listening. There's plenty of content and, uh, you know, hopefully um, you guys have already listened to those podcasts before you found us. So anyway, um, one other last bit of business, if you wouldn't mind whatever uh, content provider that you're using to listen to podcasts, if you would leave us a rating, especially if you can leave us a five-star rating, that's going to help our podcast reach more listeners, uh, be more searchable by those um, different content providers, be it Apple or Google or Spotify or whatever that you're using. And so we'd really appreciate that. That would kind of help us as well. And um, anyway, Dave, one more time, thank you so much for sitting in. Uh, We've been big fans of yours for a long, long time, and it's been a lot of fun being able to talk with you. Oh, thanks, guys. It's been um, a real pleasure being on the show. Well, awesome. And if there's there's anything we can do to help uh, make that episode 100 uh, great, uh, be sure and let us know. And uh, in the meantime, we'll be listening to those future episodes and uh, waiting to hear what those uh, what kind of content you're going to bring us in the coming week. No dramas. You'll definitely be getting the call. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent. Well, TJ, Doug, as always, uh, thanks a lot, you guys. I can't wait uh, to look at episode three in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Take care. Yeah, thanks for stopping by. 